Okay, let's pray. Lord, your mercy and your kindness is new every day. Your faithfulness is apparent in the ways in which we get to even wake up, we breathe again, we get to enjoy and worship with you together, the way we have fellowship with one another, the way we get to encourage one another in our faith. All those are signs of your kindness to us. And as, as we think together, as we've thought together about discipling and, and actually being in your word, and now as we think about how to help people with their problems and be involved in accountability in each other's lives, we just need your help to think wisely about this. So we ask for that help, knowing that you grant wisdom to those who ask. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, you know, so in lesson one, we uh, thought through discipling and we talked about it being a one-on-one -on -one mentoring, one Christian with another with the goal of helping each other spiritually grow in Christ. That was our basic definition of what we're talking about. But, you know, in the Q&A, we expanded that a little with one-on-two or teacher teaching a class. But I'm going for the one-on-one -on -one because I want the opportunity for you to pour into the specifics of one person's life, get into the nitty-gritty of their life. Now, if you think of discipling as a continuum, I'm going to use the word that you often hear, not in a culture, but often with Christians too, counseling as one end of that continuum. Uh, counseling, I'm putting as a subset of discipling. It deals with the hard and nasty issues that you find in the Christian life. So the depression, suicide, porn, eating disorders, troubled marriages... It's more problem-focused and time-intensive version of discipling. You know, notice what I'm doing with that. Uh, I made counseling a subset of discipling because it turns it into something that we all engage with. If you take time to be involved in someone else's life because we live in a fallen world, you're going to encounter problems. You're going to encounter sin. You're going to encounter suffering. You're going to encounter difficulties. It's a part of what it means then to be in a fallen world together. And what I'm, I, I, I'm grateful for is that those in the church who either have a propensity for getting involved in some of the hard things or those who are raised up to especially do that within the church. Uh, those are wonderful gifts of God to God's people. Uh, and what, what we don't want to do is pass off all those hard things to the gifted people. Why is that? Because we're called to be sufferers together. It's a basic part of humanity to suffer and understand what it means to be human is to suffer. And what we don't ever want is for someone to suffer alone, especially not in the kingdom of God. So we're called to discipling others, and in doing that, it's a whole life commitment. Uh, we take both the good and the bad as we stand alongside with both the happy and the hurting believers. You know, our love is shown in how we persevere through both the good and the hard times with someone. And, and all of us are called to walk alongside suffering Christians. We're, we're, in that sense, we're a community of counselors together working through the difficulties in the Christian life. You know, if one of my church members came to me and said, I want to disciple someone, I think I could just tell them, well, go find another Christian. And they can, because the Spirit's within them, and because the clarity of Scripture is, is clear for them in just the basic reading of the Bible, 
open up the word, read the Bible to one another, discuss it with each other, and help build each other up in their faith. No training required. Nothing else necessary. Uh, as long as they have the Bible and the Spirit, they can do that together. But one of my church members came to me, and, and they said someone they know uh, said to them, I'm suicidal and thinking of taking my life. Or I'm a chronic alcoholic. I'm so angry, I'm ruining my marriage. I'm not sure every member in my church is going to know what to do in response to that. And so that, that's where we, we want to help people to understand how Scripture builds a bridge into, the, into people's lives. We talked about that generally in discipling. But even to, into people's problems and difficulties helps speak into their suffering. So that's what I want to do in, in this in, in next time together. I want to talk about how to interact with people's struggles. Uh, it, I want to help you think about what I call redemptive strategies, uh, ways of interacting with a problem or difficulty. So what's a strategy? It's a way to interact with the problem that's presented to you. It's a deliberate method that a counselor or a pastor or a discipler employs to help someone deal with sin and suffering or any kind of personal struggle. Uh, depending on the person's situation, the pastor, counselor, discipler can employ a host of redemptive strategies in how they deal with sin or suffering. Our goal is to help someone see how to respond in faith, what faith might look like in any particular situation. And, you know, what these are are not are distinct steps. Uh, this is never uh, 10 steps to an easier life. It's not a quick, easy recipe to fix someone's problems. Don't, don't, don't think that way. It's just, that's, that's a horrible way to think about people suffering. Uh, no, in fact, what these are are just a sampling of ways to interact with the problem. How, how, when, when, when a difficult dynamic shows up, how do you think as a Christian as you step in? Hence, a redemptive strategy to step into someone's issue. So I've, I've listed 10 there for you. I just want to walk through each one of them. Number one, uh, strategy number one, inter reintroduce God. Because of how rampant biblical illiteracy is in our day, it's not surprising that many Christians have a superficial understanding of the character of God. Yet, knowing God as he reveals himself is the greatest source of confidence for human life. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Getting to know the character of God is going to be helpful no matter what the problem is. The most important thoughts you have are the thoughts you have about God. The most important thoughts you have are the thoughts you have about God. A faulty understanding of God is going to affect how you respond to life. I call this trickle-down theology. You know, uh, what you believe about God affects everything else. You know, it trickles down like rain from the sky into all of your life. Theology matters. You know, it matters what you believe because it affects then how you live. So, for example, if a person sees God as critical and scrutinizing, she'll respond with fearful resignation. Christianity to her becomes moral performance and life becomes graceless. If a person sees God as genie or Santa Claus, he expects God to grant him happiness. You know, that's a, uh, so many people walking around just have a sense of entitlement to happiness in this life. 
No surprising he'll respond in frustration and disappointment when suffering comes and will be really miffed at you when you come and talk to him in categories of God's glory. There's a wide range of misconceptions that people have when it comes to God. I, I think I've, I counter these all the time as I'm helping people with their suffering and their sin. I just want to give you a sample of six of them that I think I feel like I run into, just faulty ways of understanding God. The first one I already mentioned just a moment ago, Genie and Santa Claus. God exists to give me whatever I want. Second, the tyrant. There's a condemnation and judgment from God. No grace. So God commands me and he demands from me. And then Jesus is my best friend. God is all about grace and forgiveness. There's never anything I can do that's wrong. There's no condemnation and judgment. He's only a God of love. And then number four, the distant relative. You know, this is a relationship with God who is like that relative that you see once a year at a, a family wedding. You know, the, the, the second or third cousin that you don't really know that well, interact with that all that much. And yet, because you know they're related to you, you interact and make the, 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 the polite small talk as you get to know them. Well, it's, it's not unlike that. You know, you, you have a relationship, but there's just not much depth to it. It's pretty superficial. At its best, even though you're related to one another, you really just don't know each other. Well, just like a relationship with that distant relative, your relationship with God is superficial at best. And then the unstable, unpredictable boss. God is the authority figure who's fickle and unpredictable in all his ways. And then the puppet master. That's a fatalistic approach to God. Now, what happens is inevitable and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, this leads to a passive approach to life, and if I can't change anything, then why do I bother doing anything at all then? You know, perhaps you can summarize this point by saying misconceptions of God are always tied to the person's deepest desires and core expectations of life, which is why true knowledge of God brings order to these desires and expectations. The best way to introduce someone to God is to tell them about Jesus. And what does John chapter 14 tell us? Those who know the Son will also know the Father. In, in telling them the gospel, we introduce them to the God who sent his Son, who rescues sinners and rescues them especially from their own selfish desires and expectations. You know, who wouldn't want a God like that? Forget about the genie, forget about the tyrant, forget about Jesus as my best friend, forget about the distant relative, forget about the unstable, unpredictable boss, and forget about the puppet master. God is not passive. He grabs hearts and turns people upside down. I mean, that's what the gospel does in transforming us. And so we, want, we, we don't want any of those views of God to characterize who we are, especially in our relationship with Christ. Number two. Depsychologize. You're, 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 the folks you're helping, um, fellow church members, listen uh, to cultural ways of thinking all the time. You know, uh, Oprah, Dr. Phil, they read magazines, news on the internet. You know, they absorb psychological ways of thinking all the time because that's the way our culture often speaks. Sometimes, uh, people have so willingly embraced the cultural norms that the largest part of what you're doing is dissuading them of the priorities and values that are just simply unbiblical. 
Many of these folks uh, are self-professed Christians, and yet they largely view life from a framework of worldly standards, whether explicitly, like over-identifying, for example, with psychological labels, like I am I'm defined by PTSD, not my identity in Christ, or bipolar, or, or depression, or whatever. Or implicitly, like, when I presume lasting happiness is both possible and expected. Helping them to see themselves as a child of God primarily, rather than bipolar, schizophrenic, or accepting suffering as normal for Christians, rather than running from it, is going to take patient reworking of some very subtle assumptions that people own. Let me just give an example. Many years ago, I worked with a young guy, and as I'm helping him with his problems, at some point I gave him a charge, a responsibility, in order to act, act, uh, act in a Christian way and deal with his sin. And yet he kept on coming back at me with this response, I can't do that because I'm OCD. I can't do that because I'm OCD. You know, I can't do that either because I'm OCD. After a while, I'm just going, throw OCD out. <laughs> really? I mean, now, you know, a little sidebar. I mean, I, I think there's a usefulness in diagnostic labels. I think there's ways as Christians we can use it and think wisely about it. And yet in this case, I think what I saw, as I've often seen, as even Christians and non-Christians over-identify with the psychological labels and it becomes primary to their identity. And in this case, it removed from him, the psychological label took away the power of of personal responsibility in actually choosing to act and deal with his problems. It ended up becoming an excuse for him to become passive in dealing with the issues that were in front of him. I, well, I need to depsychologize the way he thought about himself. His identity needed to be first and foremost in Christ, not OCD. And, and, and it's from that kind of identity, it begins to rearrange his disposition towards all of life. And as an image bearer and a child of God, he had the ability to respond to his problems, not just passively receive them. You know, the most true thing about a Christian is being a treasured possession of Christ, whatever may be going on with them physiologically. And until a person operates out of this priority, they'll be hindered in responding in faith to any of their troubles. Number three, deprogram performance. So a legalistic performance mentality can be described in two ways. You know, big L, I'm going to call it, and little L. Uh, The big L, obviously, in both cases, stands for legalism. The, The little L, my identity revolves around the idea, I feel better about myself when I'm able to do something. In Washington, D.C., I'm surrounded by type A personalities. You know, the classic workaholic, high achiever, came to D.C. to conquer the world, to change all of the United States and the entire world. Uh, You know, that basically describes our congregation. (laughs) Um, So as, you know, disciplers, pastors, counselors, I'm constantly helping people to be less focused on doing and just simply check something off their list and just being with God. Learning to rest in him. So uh, I want to teach people not to check yet another thing off of their list, whether it's practical or spiritual, but to rest in the finished work of Christ, which has brought to them, brought them into the family of God and made them a child of God. Big L. 
in regards to my salvation. My mentality is that I must do something in order to earn God's favor. My salvation is not by grace or by faith, but through work so that I can boast in myself. Now, nobody explicitly says that. Nobody uses those words. But you know how many people I run into that say, you know, it, it can't be all about grace. <laughs> it has to be something I got to do in this deal. I need to do something to earn it. And especially if all of your life is oriented around just this kind of workaholic type A, get it done mentality, wouldn't it be surprised that your salvation is going to be infected with that too? If someone is stuck in this performance trap, that is, they must do something in order to earn God's favor, then they need to grow in their understanding of free grace. Ephesians chapter 2. Take comfort in their identity in Christ. Galatians chapter 3 to 4. And learn to rest in God's love. Romans chapter 8. Grace and love are the biggest antidotes of performance mentality. A lifetime of legalistic performance mentality won't change overnight. It'll, it'll actually take time to work through this with someone. Some members will come to you so entrenched in a certain way of thinking and living, it'll feel like you're deprogramming someone who's just been sprung from a cult. You know, their mind is so caught up with this way of thinking and living, it's just going to take work over the course of time to actually help them. Others will hide behind a legalistic view of God to prevent them from seeing truly profound ways they fall short because it's too painful for them to acknowledge. In either case, Christians who are deeply entrenched in unbiblical ways of thinking must be patiently challenged with the dual truth that humans are far more shameful than they could ever bear to acknowledge, and yet are far more holy than we could ever dare to hope. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to contemplate. How you interact with a person who is struggling with this can either reinforce that performance trap, or you could deprogram it. You know, just give an example, like as, as I ask someone, how they're doing in their relationship with the Lord, you know, oftentimes what I'll get is someone who responds by defining to me how often they do their quiet time. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll do it as if, if, if they're doing their quiet time, they're good with God. Uh, and in fact, if they're consistent about their quiet time, there must be something that's going well. And yet you can be in the Word regularly and have a heart that's very distant from God. And so what I want to do when I interact with them is I stop asking them about their quiet times even as a measure of their personal relationship with God. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them about that, but I want to be really careful because I'm feeding into that legalistic mentality. But rather, I just want to say, how are you with God? Are you distant or are you close with God? And then, you know, we bring in all those other things after that. Number four, contrast functional versus uh, confessional assumptions. You know, what we say we believe and how we actually function are often at quite odds with one another. A couple examples here. A grown woman who was beaten by her father as a child will have a hard time trusting men, let alone men in authority, despite knowing scripture describing how redeemed men can conduct themselves. Or an adult child of drug addicts who essentially was abandoned by his parents might walk around convinced that he has to fend for himself because no one else is going to do that for him, despite what he reads about the theological power of Christian fellowship. <laughs> Both of these believers are, are struggling with what I'll call functional assumptions. These are just guiding principles how that, that affect their life. You know, the, what does a woman believe that I just described? She believes that men cannot be trusted. The one man, the one man 
who should have protected her and taken care of her, betrayed her and abused her her entire life. So why wouldn't she walk around thinking, men are scum? That, that's her vantage point as she interacts with life. Or the adult child of drug addicts believes that no one has his back because his parents were irresponsible and horrible to him his entire life. What are your functional assumptions? You know, I, I, I give some of these kind of examples because they, they make it clearer what the functional assumptions will be. And yet we all have them. You know, we, we all have them, whether we realize it or not. In these two situations, the functional principles are explicit, but most of us walk around with more subtle functional assumptions that misguide our lives and are trickier to identify. You know, you contrast functional assumptions with confessional assumptions. It is what we know to be true according to the Bible. What we confess to be true according to God's Word. You know, pastors, disciplers, counselors need to root out the guilt and shame that lies uh, lies behind and defines functional assumptions and plead with and teach and persuade a person of the amazing value of a life oriented by God's perspective. Uh, we can undermine bad functional assumptions by teaching and modeling true confessional assumptions. Note, note what I said there. Teaching and modeling. I think they, they both go hand in hand as we undermine those functional assumptions. Teaching and modeling is Christ-like. We're not only proclaiming the truth, but we're actually incarnating it by the way we live it out in front of someone. In some situations, a person's sin and suffering is so hard, truth feels hollow to them. They, they need to not only hear the truth, but also experience it. So go back to the examples, the abused woman. Teaching. Uh, as the abused woman comes to terms with the abuse of her father and the love of God for her, she's willing to reconsider if loving, self-sacrificial male authority is actually possible this side of heaven. So that's teaching. But what about modeling? If that abused woman comes on my radar screen through my counseling staff, you know what I want to do? I'm going to have my wife invite her over to dinner with our family. You know why is that? Because I want her at the dinner table as my seven-year-old daughter crawls into my lap and I begin tickling with her. And she turns around and kisses me on the cheek. Or as I trade humorous, sarcastic jabs with my 12-year-old daughter who will laugh and laugh and laugh as we enjoy one another at the table there. Or as I walk in the door, and the first thing I do is I give my wife a kiss and ask her how her day is. I just need her to see all of that. Because as she sees that, truth comes to life. And she actually begins to see, this is actually possible this side of heaven. She, she witnesses and experiences a redeemed man and says, the word is true. It can actually happen. Because in her world, she'd never, ever seen that before. And you think, well, I mean, she sees me at church. No, well, she sees you in the pulpit. Or she sees you leading a small group. But she doesn't see what your life is like. So I want to make that possible. So that's what the modeling part of it is. It goes hand in hand. You're not just an example, but 
Truth comes to life as we live it out in front of her. I want her to see that there is a Father God who is gentle and tender and caring in his love and no longer have to think of this as an abstract intellectual idea, but flesh it out for her, incarnational truth. What about the drug addict? Teaching uh, an adult child of drug addicts to learn both the limits of and the redemption of human relationships in Christ, well, he'll learn in the context of that what appropriate trust of others looks like. That's the teaching part of it, but modeling, uh, I, as I came alongside one of these guys, I, in my words and actions, had to be consistent over a long period of time because I needed him to know that I am there for him. I'm not going to turn my back on him. I'm going to persevere with him over the course of years. I wanted to show him what a consistent life and a trustworthy life could look like by coming alongside of him. And it wasn't so much the things I taught him, though I taught him a lot, but it was just me being there for him. You know, being, being there when he had a hard moment or when he started dating a wonderful gal and yet didn't know how to do this. I wanted to be the one person in his entire life had, who was consistent, faithful, and reliable in a way that his parents had never been. Uh, number five, reframe. So uh, why are collectors of fine art quite selective about their frames? You know, you, you, you buy a $500,000 painting, you don't go down to Target and buy the $40 frame. You know, people would walk in and say, well, that, that looks odd. <laughs> no, a beautiful painting becomes questionable in a hideous frame. And so also life, when distress and fear can be framed in a way that either helps a person begin to relate to God or actually live in that distress and fear as quite unbearable for their life. You know, pastors and counselors can actually help people reframe the raw data of their lives with a distinctly biblical frame. Uh, a, a discipler, pastor, counselor helps a struggling person consider how God would frame the situation and helping him to see a picture of life much more clearly. You know, I'll give you an example. A depressed man comes to you and, and expresses his marital problems, as he did to me a couple of years ago, and he's just essentially said to me, things are hopeless, uh, and he's, he, he doesn't really feel like he can keep going on. He was struggling in his depression. He was struggling in his marriage. Well, the depressed man then asked me, have you ever seen a marital situation this bad? What do I say? Yes, I have. I have. And you know what I can do from my vantage point is not only give him a biblical perspective. God cares. He loves you. He is faithful. And I can begin to frame his struggles in that way. But I also can share to him from my perspective in helping him to see, like, you know, other people have been down this road and God's redemption has helped them to recover to a place where they are actually thriving with God now. I can take a man's frame of fear and doom and as a pastor or a discipler, help reframe it with the hope of a redeemed marriage. My interpretation puts a new frame on the data of his life. And, and I, I, I put a frame on it that didn't surround the picture prior to our conversation. 
Well, that's what I do. You know, I'm not just trying to give good advice. I'm trying to give him a distinctly biblical frame for the circumstances of his life. For your people's sake, don't accept their starting points or their conclusions. Uh, Help them to consider other frames, other angles, other lighting that better draws redemptive hope into the picture. Uh, A reframing word is remarkably clarifying at times. You know, this is the essence of encouragement. What does encouragement mean? It literally means to lend courage to a situation. Paul did this, you know, with the Thessalonians in helping them to frame their lives in light of the glorious future that awaited them when Christ would return. First Thessalonians chapter four. Number six, uncover underlying d- dynamics. You know, in every situation, there's unspoken dynamics that define what's going on. You know, a wife may have an expectation for how much money she should spend, uh, 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 should be spent on the family budget or how her husband should serve her. Or she might have fears uh, that he, he may abandon her just like her father did when uh, she was growing up. She might have a sense of entitlement like her husband owes her a big house or a nice car or beautiful clothes if he claims he truly loves her. Or she might wrestle with idols that rule her heart, like perfectly behaved children or an out-of-this-world sex life with her husband. Expectations, fears, anger, entitlement, apathy, idolatries. All of these are underlying dynamics that can define and sometimes even rule a situation. You know, what do we want to do? We want to draw them out and make them explicit. Uh, it, it's hard to deal with anything in a person's situation if they lie underneath the surface and nobody's actually made them clear. You know, many years ago, I'm, I'm helping uh, a husband and a wife, and the wife had this strong sense of entitlement, so she often nagged her husband for things. She wanted a bigger house. She wanted a nicer car. She wanted more beautiful clothes. She just wanted all of that. One day, we're sitting there as the husband and wife are across from me, and we're counsel- I'm counseling with them. And finally, as she's in this nagging process, she finally declares, I deserve to be treated like a princess. <laughs> And I'm sitting there looking at her husband going, did she really just say that? (laughs) Well, that was the underlying dynamic that was made explicit. You know, her strong sense of entitlement was coming out in the way she constantly nagged him. But then, you know, in that little sentence, that declaration, you got how she really viewed life. The love of the world has many different forms and it takes some of them more brazen and obvious, others understated and subtle. But a person is helped when she is alerted to what she is not sensible to and then directed to Christ as the true object of her worship. Number seven, show consequences. Every decision in life, whether large or small, has consequences. You know, this is the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. Uh, the type of seed you plant is the type of crop you carry home. You know, in the front end of people making decisions, it helps to explore the different alternatives that a person might be facing and to trace out the logical consequences of certain decisions and lifestyles. Based on his or her experience as you can help someone on, you, you might actually give likely scenarios that will play out because you've actually been there before. 
you know, you're, you're older, more mature, more experienced. You've been down that road. So you can help them understand if they make decision A, it's likely to end up with decision B or C. You know, how do you know uh, uh, what, the, what that is or where it's likely to go? Well, you've been there. You, you've experienced that. You've understood it. You've read books. You've been, hurt, you've been taught about that. You know, you know, people think you're really, uh, really smart when you actually show them the pathway where it's headed. You know, they say something like, how did you know I'd be thinking or feeling like that? Or how did you know that if I made decision A, it'd end up with decision B? Well, it's not rocket science. You know, if I've been down that road, then I know what it's like. Or if I actually helped, you know, 10 friends who've struggled with pornography, I'm not surprised how certain decisions end up with other decisions. Or if I helped two friends who've struggled with anger, I'm not surprised how certain decisions end up with other decisions. It's just, it, it, enough time in interacting with different dynamics and people's struggles, you'll begin to see where they lead to. You know, as a discipler, you'll find yourself in situations where it's incumbent upon you to speak prophetically, not in a strict direct from the wor direct word from the Lord sense, uh, but rather in a sense of laying out clear and sober warnings of certain consequences. Uh, what you want is uh, to help someone clearly see the pathway forward. What you don't want is someone saying after the fact, if I had only known, if I had a dollar for every time a member said, if I had only known, and yet I'm sitting there thinking, I told you A plus B equals C. You just didn't hear me. You know uh, what, what they're going to face, and so you speak up to potentially head off bad decisions. And such warnings are going to be accompanied by pleasant descriptions of the positive outcomes of submitting your life to God. Basically, you're, you're challenging people to have a vision of where their actions and their attitudes and their desires will actually take them, either for good or for ill. Number eight, confront and reorient. You know, it's quite common for us as Christians to have hard conversations with people who are in our life. Much more common for pastors and counselors to have hard conversations with actually hardened and foolish people. Confrontation is just a normal part of life. Uh, as a discipler, you're going to be given the solemn charge to proclaim the word of God to those who come into your life. A crucial part of love is being willing to say the hard thing. If we really love God's flock, we'll warn and exhort them when they stray and make bad choices. And so as disciples, we are often truth tellers. We're often good at using the truth to confront someone in their sin. I'm going to call this banging on the front door. You see the sin, it's explicit, you go confront a Christian as the word directs you to. You, you speak into their life. You know, consider a wife who committed adultery. Sometimes what you deal with when you deal with an adulterer is actually the adulterer is wavering between going away with their lover or going back to their family. They have a divided heart and they're not sure what to go, what, what to do, which way to go. So you need to confront her and say, running away from your lover is equivalent to turning your back on God. Or a single man who's deep into sexual sin, premarital sex, pornography, maybe even strip clubs, just deep into sexual sin. So you confront him and say, flee sexual immorality. Repent of that sin. Only the pure in heart will see God. As a discipler, if, if you do not confront when you should, that is unloving. 
You know, you're being more fearful than you are loving. God is the one who seeks out wanderers, even though they don't know that they're wandering. And just as God seeks them out, so also should we. Knowing how to confront someone in a specific situation is not always easy. Uh, but it should always be clearly biblical what is being confronted and why it's displeasing to God and how it shows up in a person's life. Confrontation should always be delivered, always be delivered with redemptive intention and with a personal commitment to love someone. Many times the warning will go unheeded and, you know, a person will go over the cliff with their sin, abandon the faith or fall into blatant sin. And this is not necessarily a commentary on the quality of the confrontation, but on the Lord's means of handling the person at that time. And the hope is always that someone who strays will return to their gospel senses. Number nine, counseling in the moment. You know, when, when someone starts crying in front of you, most of you are going to feel uneasy about it. <laughs> you, most of you will take on this disposition of it just feels uncomfortable because uh, someone's getting emotional. You know, you remember this when you were dating and your wife first started crying and you just thought, oh, what do I do with this? <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> and especially if you just had brothers and no sisters, you're even in a worse position thinking, oh, no, a woman's crying in front of me. What do I do? <laughs> they don't write about this in the dating books. <laughs> well, you know, if you're ever in that moment where you're helping anyone and someone starts crying, you need to pause and capture the moment. You know, what did I do as a rookie counselor? What I'd often do is I'm teaching a couple, working through an issue with them. And, I, you know, here as I have entered the session, I, I know where I want to go. I'm, I'm helping them head in that direction. And then somebody bursts out crying. And my rookie mistake would be I would just blazing right over it because I got an agenda. <laughs> I, I'm here to accomplish what God has told me to accomplish. Or is that just me being thick-headed, pressing forward, when God is providing me an amazing moment to actually pause and figure out what's going on with the tears. You know, we, we had this the other day where I'm, I'm counseling with one of our other counselors with a couple. And, uh, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's a couple who've been struggling and they've come to our church and we're opening up and we're making good progress and figuring out what's going on. And, you know, as the wife has had deep struggles and the husband's just competent and he's with it and, you know, he's, He's got his act together. As we're in this conversation, suddenly he burst out crying. I, he's the last person I would expect to do that. And the other counselor, who was one of my more junior partners, was still pressing forward with the wife. And I'm sitting here thinking, slow down. <laughs> this guy who's got his act together is crying. <laughs> we got to figure out what's going on right now. So I actually paused and said, hey, hold on. And I looked at him and said, why are you crying? And it opened up this huge window into his heart. <laughs> that was insightful for everybody who was in the room. So, you know, if, if, if your wife is breaking down in tears or, you know, a member is beginning to cry, it serves them to slow down and understand why they're crying. <clears throat> Learning to counsel in the moment is a skill of a caring disciple who is poised to take advantage of unforeseen opportunities that the Lord presents to you. And strategy number 10, approaching the side door. 
Rather than a confrontational frontal assault, you know, as disciplers, it's good to be truth tellers. You know, we talked about this a moment ago. We were good at confronting people in their sin, you know, barging in the front door. And yet, we need to be thoughtful about when we choose to confront. Confrontation, or what I called earlier, front door strategies, at times won't work because what does it do? It provokes someone's defensiveness. It causes the person to actually be more distant or hardened to your comments or whatever you want to say. So there, there are times for front door strategies, uh, but they don't always work. And uh, typically a person can argue away or blame or condemn another person. And blaming and condemning causes a person to put up walls and makes the conversation harder. But consider the same problem, but by what I'm going to phrase, going through the side door. Let's just take an example. A, a, a Christian woman who starts dating a non-Christian man. According to the Bible, I think that's unwise and, in fact, foolish, especially if she gets serious in the relationship and marries him. I think that's explicitly unbiblical for her to do that because the word is very clear. You're only to marry someone in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6 and 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39. Yet, you know, I can go to her and say... What are you doing? You know this is foolish. Repent and drop the guy. You shouldn't be doing this. And how's she going to react? Whoa, <laughs> what are you doing? Or I, I could come to her and say, you know, I love you. <laughs> I'm here and I'm committed to you for your good. I, I'm, I'm here to shepherd you and care for you. So let, let's talk together about what's going on, because I want to understand what you're wrestling with, and I want to enter in and walk alongside of you, and let's sort through this together. You know, rather rudely stuffing truth down her throat, I'm trying to enter into a side door by one, reaffirming my love for her, my commitment to her as a brother in Christ, as her pastor, and two, just simply asking a question. Would you really be willing to consider 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 with me just to see what God's word has to say? And this is grounded in the truth that God loves you and I, as a fellow brother and Christian, love you too. I'm here for your good. And keep in mind, the Bible speaks of tone. Proverbs 15.1, a gracious answer turns away rash, wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's the 10 redemptive strategies. And yet, look, whoa, number 11, a bonus. Here we go. <laughs> Short-term and long-term goals. Uh, when, when a person has lost the fog of difficulty, unable to see steps forward, and sometimes the best thing to do is simply suggest solid, biblical, concrete, short-term or long-term goals. You know, I often have this. I'll have, uh, 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 let's just take an example. A couple of years ago, I had a friend who was deeply depressed, so he and his wife came in. And, you know, in, in the midst of his depression, he was having a hard time just actually doing anything. You know, in bed, not, not, not even like getting up to clean himself, hygiene, eat, do anything. And so his wife pulled him into the office and we began to work through things. And I started ministering God's word to him. We talked through his struggles. We worked through his suffering. And yet, you know, rather than just sending off to figure it out, I need to help them with concrete things, steps 
because they were lost. You know, while change is mysterious and often incremental, it doesn't mean that counseling process, helping others, discipling others, needs to be nebulous. You know, we are called to specific action in living out our faith. So simple, practically oriented goals that address a problem can be remarkably helpful in getting someone else out of the fog. You know, just setting goals will take time to help someone. Often someone in the midst of trouble can't figure it out for themselves. And you might think, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And yet someone in a deep depression who can't even get out of bed, actually, that's a lifesaver. So what did we do as I sat with him and his wife? We came up with small, concrete goals for his day. And he couldn't handle even more than one. So we just settled on that. One thing that he could do each day as a forward step. And you know what? If he got to the end of the day and he didn't get that done, at the end of every night, they got together and reevaluated, like, what does the Lord allow you to do tomorrow? And if he needed to, just make that goal the, the, the goal for the next day. You know, part of what you're doing is making sure you're setting goals that are realistic and doable for them. We should not set goals that are dependent on other factors. So, for example, instead of setting a goal for a crummy husband to have a better marriage next week, because <laughs> that's dependent on his wife, you set the goal for him to confess his sin to his wife and to ask for her forgiveness. Or setting a goal for a depressed person to feel more hopeful this week. You set a goal that's more directly under their control, like beginning to read God's Word, or finding a way to serve someone else, or beginning to exercise. You just make it small, concrete, specific, or you make larger goals that are realistic and doable for them. But either way, you know, God has an agenda for their life, so you get to actually make it concrete and, and specific in their life as you work through this. And that's, we're deep in the realm of wisdom then, in helping people apply God's word to the nitty gritty details of their specific life. So that's, that's the main thing that I want to tell you. That's 11 strategies, just 11 ways to interact with a problem, different ways. You know, and then what I didn't do is just give you 15 types of suffering. What I did give you is ways to interact with different kinds of suffering that walk in the door. And what you need to do is then apply wisdom as you interact with different situations. What I warned you against at the beginning is taking five simple steps and applying to every person that walks in. And, you know, one of my closest friends in Bill Counseling often, as he mentored me, would say, you know, it's never five steps. It's never a recipe or cookie cutter approach. He said counseling is a lot more like light jazz. You, you are improvising and moderating because you just don't know what God is going to present to you in the moment. And that's just realistic because that's the way life is. And so you take these things and think about then how to actually respond to life. So my challenge to you is just go over this list again, think about them, pray about them, and then look for the opportunities. You know, the, the best thing you can ever do is start applying it. You know, and, and the examples would be like this upcoming week as someone comes to you struggling with something, begin to put a frame around it that's distinctly biblical. Start thinking how to gently help them see how God's word matters. Or the next time you interact with someone, you see them deeply upset or tears starting to come down. Pause whatever's happening and just go ahead and ask them, tell me about the tears. 
Tell me why you're crying. There, there's an abundance of opportunities out there. And what we need is the courage and confidence to start stepping into them and helping God's word come to bear in those situations. Okay, so let me pray. Lord, we want to know how to help people in their strugglers, struggles. We want to be faithful disciplers. And so help us to do that. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.